Welcome to Souls Harbor's weekly podcast. We believe that God has called us to lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, help them grow to be like Jesus, and involve them in reaching lost people. Listen now to this week's message. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight for our uh, Wednesday night Bible study. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, We've got several people that have jumped on the feed, and I hope some more will jump on before we're finished tonight as we go live. We are working our way through the story of the Old Testament. Now listen, if if uh, you're aware, and if you haven't been living in a cave, you are aware that we have a really important day coming up here in a few weeks that's going to have to do with leadership. Well, if that matters to you, and I suspect everybody on this feed, it does matter, uh, tonight's Bible study, tonight's study through God's Word will be really important to you. We're going to talk a lot about what it means to be a good leader, what it looks like to be a not-so-good leader, uh, and a little bit about what maybe we ought to do about good leaders, bad leaders as Christians. Uh, we'll delve into that just a little bit. I'm Pastor Barry from Souls Harbor. If you're new to the feed, welcome. We're glad to have you with us tonight. I uh, would love to have you join our our not only our group, but also our page. And you can pick up Sunday morning sermon on our Souls Harbor page uh, if you're not already a part of that. We are uh, going to spend a little bit of time here in a moment, uh, delving into the book of Joshua. We're going to look at some First and Second Samuel, a little bit of First and Second Kings as we work our way, continue to work our way through the story of the Old Testament. And one of the things that I um, always like is when you guys engage. So please feel free to like, to share, uh, feel free to comment. We love to have you guys comment along the way. Uh, it's helpful to me if I see people put some responses out there or some thoughts out there. Uh, as well as just talk to one another. We're glad to have that as well. Uh, and I see tonight we've got Shelly with us, and it looks like the Redmonds are on there, and Sam and Don are with us. Good to have you guys. Uh, I see Jessica, and I'm just looking through our feed here to see who else we've got with us tonight. Brenda, Joel is out there, and Joe, and Cheryl, and Jenny. And I don't know who else we have up above the feed higher than that, but welcome. We are glad to have you all tonight. Hey, with that, let's pray. Uh, and then we're going to jump into the story of the Old Testament. Heavenly Father, tonight we love you. We thank you for being just an incredible God that we serve, a real God, a living God. And I pray tonight as we dive into the Word of God, your Word to us, uh, help us, Lord, not only to just gain a, a head knowledge of these things, but, Lord, a heart knowledge, which is even more important. Tonight we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's do this as we do each and every week. Let's just take a moment and let's revisit a couple of things. So last week we talked about Exodus plus a few other things. Last week we spent some time carrying the story of the Old Testament on forward. And we looked at how God had taken a family, the family of Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the other 11 brothers, and turned a family into a nation by taking them uh, into the, the nation of Egypt as a family and then bringing them out on the other side as a nation. We talked about that a good bit, how God is moving his plan of redemption forward, his plan to restore humanity, us, into a right relationship with him. We also last week talked about how God has protected his plan, and we're going to see that even again tonight as we go on through this story of the Old Testament. God protects his plan of restoration. There is nothing that is going to... um, dethrone it or knock it off the tracks along the way. Uh, We also spent some time last week looking at how God has continued his covenant. It was a covenant initially with Abraham, 
Uh, then it became a covenant with Isaac and Jacob. And then as the nation, uh, the, the family of Jacob became the nation of Israel, it became a covenant with a nation. And we spent some time last night looking at covenant expectations. So tonight, where are we going to go? We're going to move on into some uh, other uh, books of the Bible a little bit further along. We're going to look tonight some more at covenant failure. Uh, that's going to be a part of what we see along the way. We're going to look at this question, this issue, this topic. Do we trust God or do we t trust politicians? Now, on the surface, the, most of us would say, well, that's not really a hard choice to make. But we're going to look at that a little bit tonight. We're going to look at man's idea of a king. Now, we don't have kings in America, obviously, although some people might disagree with the way that's going. But um, we don't have kings in America, but we do have presidents. We do have leaders. Man's idea of a king or a leader, God's idea of a king or a leader. And we're going to look at how God uses imperfect people in imperfect situations to further his plan of restoration. So with that, let's jump in tonight. And we're going to start with Joshua 24, 15. This is where we ended up last week. Joshua has brought the children of Israel into the promised land, this nation, the nation of Israel into the promised land. And he has gone through this covenant restoration or renewal with them. Uh, and, and he has set before them this, this statement, this question, this comment, however you want to put it, choose this day whom you're going to serve. And he says, Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And you'll remember last week, as the children of Israel were there preparing uh, to, to step into the promised land or had stepped into the promised land and were moving forward with, with conquering it, they made the decision, they made the choice, they made the proclamation, we will serve the Lord our God. And and we, we see that happening. But it doesn't take very long as we continue to move on through the story to realize that that proclamation, that declaration, that commitment was short-lived. And we pick up in Judges 2-7 with this, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And then in verse 10 it says, There arose another this is in Judges, there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord. And here's just a couple of thoughts. Um, how important is it, how important is it that we have our own relationship and experience with God? You see, the people served God only until the death of Joshua and that initial generation, that generation that had the experience. Um, once they lost the experience of, of being the people that had experienced the miracles of God conquering the land, they begin to fall away. And how important is it that we have our own experience with God rather than rely on the experience of those who went before us? Now listen, that's not just a, a biblical academic question. That's a very legitimate question for the church today in America. I remember reading a number of years ago uh, a, a book, I believe it was by an author named Ron Auk. It was called Pentecostals in Crisis. And he made the statement and the argument in the book that many times moves of God and, and where we were at that time as Pentecostals will last for th three generations. Basically, he was saying that the, the generation of Abraham is the excited generation, the generation that has a miraculous experience with God. Much of that gets passed on to the next generation, which was the Isaac generation in, in this, this scenario. Um, but by the time you come to the third generation, you've got a generation that at best they've heard secondhand the stories of what God 
has done. And usually, oftentimes, it's that third generation that loses their passion for God, loses their their their, their commitment to God, lose, loses all the things that made the first generation do something great for God, God. And he was arguing at the time that we as Pentecostals, we were rolling into that third generation. Now, we're now at a place where we're probably fourth and maybe even bumping on fifth generation. And, and I, it, this isn't just an academic question. We have got to make sure, make certain, that we ourselves have our own personal relationship, our own miraculous experience, our own time uh, on our face before God, our own burning bush experience, our, our, our own have built altars ourselves, not just heard our parents uh, talk about building altars. We have got to have ourselves experience the reality of who God is. Otherwise, this thing called the Christian faith, as we know it in the West, it will die. It will fall away. Now, that's not to say Christianity is going to die. There will always be somewhere where there's another first generation. But if you're part of the third, fourth generation, part of the current generation, how do you want Christianity to move forward here in the West? It's a really good question, and I think we got to make it very personal. How is my relationship with God? Is it built on what my parents said it ought to be? Is it built upon what my family said it ought to be? Or do I really have an experience myself with God? It's a really, really important question. Let's move on through the story tonight. And, and let me ask you a biblical question, okay? Those of you that are a little bit of Bible scholars, Bible historians, you you you, you like the Old Testament. Here's a question for you. Did, did God ever intend for Israel to have a king? Did God ever intend for Israel to have a king? Now, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a heads up here that there are a lot of very um, educated and, and very um, knowledgeable people that have disagreements on this question, okay? And it's a little complicated, as you're going to see. So let's just do this tonight. Let's look at this question, and then we're going to continue to move forward with God's plan of restoration. Um, we look in Deuteronomy, first of all. Did God ever intend Israel to have a king? And we're told this. When you come to the land, this is, this is what Moses had told them. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So that makes me think that God was okay with Israel having a king. Back in Deuteronomy, he seemed to give his blessing to it. He goes on and gives us this description of what a king, this king, his king, the chosen king, the, the king that he would be okay with, looks like. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt, and he shall not acquire many wives, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, so, so here's the question. What does a good leader look like? Whether you're talking about a president or a king or a governor or whatever. And, and there's a couple of things in here that maybe aren't directly applicable, but they're certainly um, applicable. He must not acquire, acquire many horses for himself. Okay, horses aren't a big deal today. Who cares, right? But here's the thing you got to understand. Horses, the idea of acquiring horses, was a, that was an issue of power. He is not going to set himself up, whether you're talking the president of the United States, the governor of the state of Indiana, whether you're talking a leader on a local level, uh, he is not going to set himself up to acquire power for himself. It's not about him. He's there to serve. Uh, he's also not going to acquire many wives, uh, which really just ties into he's not going to pursue his own desires, his own wants, his own, you could even go so far as to say lust, because we, we see that concubines become a part of that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and he is going not going to acquire for himself excess of silver and gold. So when we judge, when we make a determination on as somebody a good leader, a bad leader, a good governor, a bad governor, a good president, a bad president, 
Um, I mean, these are some things we ought to be looking at. Are they looking for power for themselves? Are they looking for wealth for themselves? N now, in our social media world, in our political political world where everything's politicized, answering that question about one of our candidates or another is hard because depending on which channel you listen to or which social media feed you're, you're connected to, you're going to get an answer that says both of these guys are doing all of these things. So you've got to dig a little deeper and make some 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 de determinations and decisions. And, and maybe you decide, you know what, neither one of them is really all of that great of a leader based on these standards, but we have to choose the better of the two. But nevertheless, we have an idea what a good leader looks like as we dig into this. This king, um, we're told in Deuteronomy, when he sits on the throne, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of, of this law, which I find interesting. The king is going to personally write out a copy of the word of God, the law as it's given, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all, all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. He's not going to be an arrogant person. He's not going to be arrogant. He's not going to be about lifting himself up and claiming, I know how to do this, and I know how to do this, and I'm better than you, and I'm better. Um, again, how you apply that to our current situation, you've got to figure out. But there's the standard that God gives for a king. So let's, let's roll a little bit further with the story of the Old Testament, okay? God in Deuteronomy, it seems, has put his blessing upon a king. But now let's come to the reality of when a king is requested. And let's look at what is said there, and let's try to make this fit a little bit. And this is 1 Samuel 8. We, we find that in 1 Samuel 8, the, the, the children of Israel, uh, the nation has come to Samuel. He's the last of the judges. Um, and, and this is what we find in, ver, in chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judge, judges over Israel. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. There's a contradiction to what we just read in Deuteronomy. These guys are chasing after their own purse, their own gold, their own gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now two things here. Why were they asking for a king? Well, it was because the nation was a mess and they thought that a king would fix the problem and they saw those that were supposed to be spiritual leaders falling short and themselves chasing after bribes. And look at the very end of that, the kind of king they were asking for. They said, appoint to us a king, for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They were asking for a king that would lead them just like all the other nations around them. So we begin to see the problem. The problem wasn't that they asked for a king. The problem was why they asked for a king and what they expected that king to be able to do. We read on in verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And here's the problem. Okay, it wasn't that they requested a king. It was that they had rejected God. If you think about it, if, if, if you think about the covenant that we talked about last, last week, God had, had, was meant to be the king of his people, the leader of his people. And they were coming to him and saying, God, um, we think that if we have a, an earthly king, a physical king, uh, he'll do a better job than you've done. Because right now, God, the, the nation's in a mess and it must be your fault. Now, we're going to see, and, and we know from reading through the Old Testament, the fault wasn't God's. The fault was that the people had chosen to walk away from God, and there were consequences from that. Let's read on a little bit. But the people refused to obey. When Samuel pushed back a little bit on, do you want a king, or they want a king? And they said, there shall be a, a, a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. 
Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And here's the thing, a couple of, uh, uh, just a thought and then a question for you, okay? Ancient Israel had lost its moral compass. Does it sound like any nation that you know today? They, they had absolutely walked away from following after God, living what we would call a holy, what the Bible would call a holy righteous life. They had lost their moral compass and they sought to solve their problems through political means. Here's the thing, anytime a people, in a nation, anytime they walk away from God's standards of righteousness and holiness, and I don't mean super uh, legalistic stuff, I mean truly um, being a people that, that shows compassion, a people that is fair, a people that is honest, a people that have integrity, a people that honors God, a, a people that, that believes in justice and true justice, not, not ginned up just, justice, but true justice. Anytime people walk away from that, a, a level of trustworthiness, a, a level of a man's word meaning something because they believe that they not only make a commitment before another man, but before God. Anytime a nation walks away from that, there's consequences. When a nation sets themselves up to destroy the foundation of marriage and the family, when they begin to rearrange it into what works for them instead of what God says, and what God teaches, they set themselves up for problems, and there's consequences, and that's what was happening in Israel, what's happening in America today. Um, there's consequences, and Israel's answer to it wasn't to say, hey, maybe we ought to go back to living the way God calls us to live. It was, hey, give us a political leader who can fix all this stuff. They had lost their moral compass. Are the deep problems of our nation political or spiritual? I mean, America's got some issues right now. Are the problems political or are they spiritual? And how should we deal with them? How should we deal with them? Now, now, now so, so here's where that question leads. Do we focus, we as Christians, do we focus too much on trusting our political leaders and not enough on trusting God? Are we more hopeful about the election in November than hopeful that God might be able to step in and make a difference? Are we more active in pushing people to vote the way we want them to vote than we are in praying and asking God to show mercy and bring about repentance in our nation? Do we spend more time in prayer or more time working the polls? That is a really good question for us Christians. Now listen, I'm not saying don't vote. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. You need to vote. You need to vote carefully. You need to vote knowing what's really going on, not just what you hear on social media. You need to vote your heart, vote your conscience, and vote with a lot of prayer, however that vote goes. But don't count on the election and the vote solving the problems of our nation because it in and of itself will not. Now, I pray regularly, God, raise up men and women in places of leadership that, be, that are men and women of character and integrity. I, I pray that regularly. I pray, God, raise up Christians and, and, and people that have character that will, will step into those roles. Um, but politics is not the answer to moral issues. Let's look a little further into this story, okay? I'm trying to watch my time here just a little bit as well. We got a, a, a this is a fairly long uh, study tonight. So Israel comes along and they say, we need a king. And as they say, we need a king, God um, gives them what they want. But here's the thing, what kind of king did they want? Now we we find an answer to that, but we find it a little bit backwards. So let's look at the king that God gives them. And I believe by looking at the king God gives them, we can get an idea of the type of 
person they thought would be a great king. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a Benjamite. Now, just as an aside, remember, this guy is from the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember last week, the promise was made that the scepter will not leave the tribe of Judah. Okay? Um, in other words, Judah will always have somebody who will reign until there comes a day where the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild the, 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 uh, um, in that tribe of Judah will reign eternal, Jesus. But this man, this is a man of Benjamin whose name was, whose name was Kish. Uh, there, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul. So, so look at the characteristics that are being chosen here. How do we pick a good leader? He's handsome. He's a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, from his shoulders up where he was taller than any of the people. They chose a king, a leader. And, and I know God said, make this man king, but I believe he did it because he looked into their hearts and realized that's who and what they're looking for. So I'm going to give them what they're looking for and let them see how that works out for them. They did it all based upon external characteristics. And, and is that how we pick leaders today on whatever level? based on how they look, how well they can talk, how snappy they are with their comebacks, whether they can give one-liners, whether they can do sound bites well, whether they can, you know, how do we choose our leaders? Is it based on those external things? Because if it is, I'm not sure that we are going to end up any better off than the children of Israel did with Saul. Saul looked like a king. He absolutely did. He, he looked like a king. But here's what we find out, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm going to read some passages. I want you to see how, how what we find out about Saul. Saul, Saul he had been king for a couple years, and he had been told that he needed to go and wait, and Samuel would come and, and offer a sacrifice. This is what God's word says. This is how it's done, Old Testament. Um, but Samuel didn't show up on time, and the people were scattering from Saul. They were His army was leaving. They were scattering. They were defecting. And Saul got nervous. Saul got scared. So he said, bring the offering here to me, and he offered the offering. He offered the sacrifice. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Samuel called him on it. And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering for me and that you did not come, I said, the Philistines will come down against me, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. Get that, I forced myself. He makes an excuse. I didn't really want to do it, Samuel, but I just had to. I didn't have any choice. It wasn't my first choice, but I just had to do it because I wanted to make sure I had the favor of God. I was afraid the Philistines were going to come against me. And, and notice it was come against me, not come against the armies of the Lord. And I offered the burnt offering. I just made a decision, Samuel, that I was going to do it my way instead of God's way. Uh, and I went ahead and did it. And Samuel said to Saul on that day, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. We read on, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And I just want to pick up a couple things. There's a second story where Saul really comes up short in living up to, to the covenant commitments and, and what a king ought to be, uh, God's idea of a king ought to be. Um, there was one point in, in the second story where it tells us this. Saul came down to Carmel, and look, look what he did. Behold, he set up a monument for who? for himself. He set up a statue for himself. You see the heart of Saul is just in a bad place. I don't care how kingly he looks. 
you could see where his heart was going and it was not good to a good place. And then there, in that same story, we find that, that when, again, Saul was, was called upon, hey, you didn't do what God said do. This is what he said. The people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The people did it. Somebody else did it. Somebody else's was responsible. So here, here's, a, here's, here, here's the thing. How obedient do I have to be? Because that's where Saul really came up short. He just was not obedient to the word of God. How obedient do I have to be is the wrong question. Okay? If you're living your life as a Christian, and the way you make a decision on whether I'll do this, whether I'll do that, how I'll live, what I'll think, what I'll look at, what I'll say, based on how obedient do I have to be to the commandments of God, then you're asking the wrong question. And I've got a question for you tonight, and I'll give you a moment to think about it. And if you want to throw us a comment out there, that would be terrific. Um, what is the right question? If the wrong question is, how obedient God do I have to be, then what is the right question? What question should we as Christians be asking? Because Saul obviously had it wrong. The way he lived his life was, what's the very least I can do and still be okay and be blessed of God and people will bless me and honor me and see me as a great guy. Um, what is the right question? I'd love to hear you guys give me some thoughts and we have enough lag here. I may not get it and that's fine um, because I'll move on here in just a moment, but I certainly want you to think about it. Um, what is the right question? What is the right question? Here's the way I would put it, okay? Here's the way I would throw it out there. It shouldn't be what how obedient do I have to be? Change one word in that. How obedient can I be? God, how obedient can I be? I see Bill throughout there. How can I serve God? Absolutely, Bill. I think that's it. And that really, if you really want to know where your heart is, it is, God, how can I serve you more? God, how can I do more for you? God, how can I more honor you? Not God, how much do I have to be just to make sure that I don't spend eternity in the bad place? Right? How obedient can I be? Not how obedient I have to do I have to be. And we see that as the problem that popped up with Saul. So what should we do when we see elected leaders build monuments to themselves and blame others refusing to accept responsibility? What should we do? Now, I'm going to be honest with you, okay? Um, that is both candidates running for president of the United States right now. Now, depending on whether you're on the left or right, you say, no, Pastor Barry, I'm not sure about that because the other side, that's him, but not the side that I'm on. But you think about it. Both of them. Um, build monuments to themselves, blame others, and refuse to accept responsibility. I would love to see a, a, a candidate actually stand up and say, you know what? Yeah, I had that wrong. I, I, I was wrong, and um, I messed that up, but here's what I'm going to do, or here's what I did instead. Now, you know and I know that's never going to happen, and maybe it can't even happen in our political climate with our news media being what it is, but wouldn't it be refreshing to actually see somebody stand up and say, you know what? I choose to be a person of character, and I choose to own my mistakes, and um, I, I will be honest about them when I actually make them. And so what do we do? Well, I think we as a democracy, what we do is we try to vote in people that have that character. Now, the struggle we have is so often the two options we're given are, do you choose bad or worse? Um, so maybe the place as we come back to realizing politics isn't going to fix this, prayer is our best hope, and we need better candidates. And I, I, what I preach Sunday, I believe with all my heart, guys, we need God to be multiplying his people. We need me and you and other Christians um, 
we need our we need to be living in a way where we walk blameless before God that he can multiply our influence multiply our ability to make a difference and raise up some men and women of God uh, who will hold positions of leadership. Maybe we're seeing somebody like that right now being put up for the Supreme Court. And I know there's those that are pushing against her, but but it seems like there is some level of character and integrity there. And maybe we're seeing some of those things happen. I know many people struggle with our president, but our vice president seems to be in large part held with pretty high esteem by most people that aren't so far to the other side um, because he seems to carry himself with some level of character and integrity. We do have those people, as hard as it is to believe sometimes, in, in a place of politics. And we need to be praying and asking God to raise up more people like that as our country moves forward. That really is our best hope. Let's, let's move on in the story of the Old Testament, okay? God gives us his idea of a king. God chooses the most unlikely person of all. He chooses the youngest son, um, David. Saul's had the kingdom taken away. You have not kept the commandments. We, we just read, and the Lord sought out a man after his own heart, another man. And we find this in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel is told to go down and prepare to anoint uh, the next king, the one who will replace Saul. And when he came, he found the eldest son, which would make sense he'll be the king, and the one who was the tallest. And the, 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 the Samuel didn't learn a, a thing, okay? He's choosing the next king the same way they chose the previous king. Surely the Lord's anointed is before me, he says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. So here's a question for you tonight. I'd love you guys to think this through. And if you, again, you want to throw a comment out there, please feel free to do that. What matters most, our actions or the desire, intent, and intent of our heart? What matters the most in, in our own personal lives? What matters the most, our actions or the desire and the intent of our heart? Which is the most important? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, um, which way that goes. Here's a thought. Both matter, okay? Um, I've heard too many Christians say, well, yeah, I'm doing this, and I'm living this way, and I'm making this choice, and these are my priorities, but God knows my heart. Jesus taught us in the New Testament, okay, that, that as, as an example here, that the words that come out of our mouth flow from the overabundance of our heart. Here's what I would suggest to you. Actions do matter. Absolutely, they do matter because your actions are reflective of what's truly in your heart. But it is possible at times to, to put up false actions or put up a front um, or act one way but our heart is really another but ultimately our heart will ultimately dictate what our actions are so i would suggest to you tonight the place to start is your heart make sure your heart's right and and the opposite of that is true sometimes our heart will be we're going to see that here in a moment with solomon our heart will be for god but our actions even then don't follow suit and thank god in those moments for his mercy and his grace and his patience with us right but we've got to make sure, first and foremost, our heart is, is sincere, our heart is hungry for God, our heart is chasing after God. And then do the best we can to let our actions flow out of that heart rather than the other way around. God looks on the heart, is what we're told, when he selects his second king, which, by the way, um, is of the tribe of 
Judah. Now, when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, this is a story later in the life of David. He said, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant, the presence of the Lord, in other words, is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. Go build God a temple. Go build God a house. Build God, build God a place. But then we read this in, in First Chronicles. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said this, go, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it's not you who will build me a house to dwell in. Now, I, I want you to pick up on this, okay? David was a man after God's own heart, and David's heart went after God. But David's actions sometimes came up short. David chased after Bathsheba, committed adultery there. There were some horrendous things. There were a couple other instances in David's life where he just made some really bad choices, bad actions, despite having a heart after God. Probably times when his heart had grown cold, his heart had grown hard, his heart had just gotten worn out, whatever, and he didn't take care of his heart. Um, but he was also a man of war. And when we begin to understand why God said, you're not going to build my house, it comes back down to, David, your, your heart is for God. Do what your heart desires. You've been honored for your heart, but your actions have not always followed through. And for that reason, you're not going to be the one who builds my house. Something to think about when it comes down to heart and actions. But he does get this promise, okay? God goes on and says, But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision Nathan spoke to David. David's throne will be established forever. His son will rule on the throne. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take this back to where we were at last week, and I'm going to bring this to a close. We're starting to run uh, a little bit past seven here. We read last week in Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. God made a promise. His promise was this. His promise was that my plan to bring about the restoration and the redemption of my people and the restoration of relationship with them will not be sidetracked. It will not be knocked off the tracks. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. In other words, my plan will stay on track. This nation will will continue to go forward. Uh, the, the, the tribe of Judah, and there will come a day where somebody will rise up. There will be a man that will rise up who will be the savior right? He will be the Savior, and, and he will be a blessing to all nations of the earth. Uh, also in Genesis, I, in fact, I preached this Sunday, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, talking about Abraham and your offspring after you through generations for an everlasting covenant. God says this covenant is not going to fall. It's not going to break. Let me end this up with Solomon here and run through Solomon really uh, fairly quickly, if you guys can hang with me for just a couple more minutes. Solomon was David's son. We had Saul who failed, David who stepped into the role, had a promise made, your, your, um, your family, your generations will continue on. Solomon had a complicated start, and I just want to hit a couple things here real quickly. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So that wasn't such a good start. He's already making marriages with the daughters of other nations who serve other gods, and that's a problem. Also, we see the people were sacrificing at the high places rather than where God had commanded them to sacrifice. But yet it says in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. So there's an instance where the heart is one place, but his actions didn't always follow suit. It says he, he loved the Lord, but only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. 
Solomon was given this incredible opportunity, and many of you know this story. He was told by God one night in a dream, ask what I shall give you, and, and you know the story. Um, he said, look, I'm like a little child. There's the humility that comes in a real leader. I don't know how to lead this people. He says, so give me understanding, give me wisdom, the King James says, in order to govern your people, that I can discern between good and evil. And it pleased God so much that God came and said, look, I'm going to give you the wisdom you've asked for, but I'm also going to give you riches and honor. And if you walk in my way, keep my statues, you're going to have length of days or a long life. But then we come to Solomon's ending, and I want you to see this tonight. Solomon loved, as he came to the end of his life, and, and his power grew, and his authority grew, he, he loved many foreign women. He clung to those women that he loved. His wives turned his heart away. We're told that he built high places. He built um, altars to Ashtaroth, and to Milcom, and high places to Chemosh, and, and Molech. These are all um, just horrendous gods of the Canaanites that, that were doing some, some horrible things and child sacrifices and a number of other things. He allowed his wives to, to, to sacrifice in those places and he built altars to them. And it got to the point where the Lord was angry with Solomon and it, because his heart had turned away from the Lord and he didn't keep what the Lord had commanded him. And the Lord said to him, since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. But I want you to see this, verse 12. For the sake of David your father, because I made a covenant and I made a promise. I made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph and to the children of Israel that came out of Egypt. Um, and I made a promise to your father David. I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to, to your son. In other words, Solomon, I'm not going to take it away in your lifetime, but your your children, your son, is not going to rule all over all 12 tribes, but I'm going to leave one tribe. I'm going to leave the tribe of, you want to guess who it is? The tribe of Judah, the tribe from whom uh, the Messiah will come. For the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen, I'm going to do this. And we see the covenant continuing on despite the failures of people like David and, and, and his, his, his misgivings and his failures and Solomon and even Saul. God was not derailed. We see the everlasting covenant continues on, as was noted in Genesis 12. We see the scepter will not depart, as was noted in Genesis 49. Uh, he said, I will make my covenant everlasting, as was noted in Genesis 17. And I end with this tonight. This is how good God is. Why did he continue on despite all the failures and the fallings and the, and, and the weaknesses and, and all the stuff uh, of his chosen family, his chosen nation, his chosen people. It was because he loves you and he loves me and because he had made a promise, a covenant, and God always keeps his covenant promises. And even when we fall short, the part that he said, I will not um, allow to fall aside, he was going to follow through. There was going to be, there was going to be a Savior and a Messiah that would come from that line of Judah. Now here's a couple of things that gives me hope and gives you hope. Um, even in our weakness, even in our failings, even in our shortcomings, God can and will still use us, although there can and often is a cost, okay? Um, we don't have to be perfect, um, but we do have to heart, have a heart that goes hard after God. And I would challenge you with that tonight. Is your heart sincerely 100% going after God? Is God first in your life? Because if he's not, then your heart isn't there, and that's really a big problem. Second thing would be if there's actions in your life that aren't following your heart, then you need to be on your face before God, talking to him and saying, God, forgive me. God, help me. God, give me strength. God, give me wisdom. God, give me deliverance. God, Holy Spirit, help me. 
help me to make sure my life and my actions line up with my heart. I would leave those two things with you tonight. Hey guys, I appreciate your your, your uh, jumping on our feet tonight. I hope something that's been said encourages you and challenges you and grows you a little bit. Next week, we're going to jump into a United Kingdom divided. We're going to continue on with the old story, the story of the Old Testament. And I've put some passages up there. If you want to read ahead and be prepared for next week, you can do that. You guys have an awesome week. I love you. I appreciate you so much and uh, pray for you regularly. And I hope to see you uh, all or at least many of you on Sunday. Uh, if you can't be there in person, please jump on our, our page and jump in the feed um, at 1120 and uh, you can tune into the sermon. God bless. You guys have a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you're looking for a church home or are interested in what God is doing through Souls Harbor, visit us at www.soulsharborag.com. If you have an encouraging story of what God has done in your life through these podcasts, please share it with us at sharbor at indy.rr.com.